Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We've got a new episode for you here in 2022. And in this episode, Chris and Kyle are going to be talking together about the geography of Judges and its significance for interpreting the book. This is the beginning of a series where they're going to be focusing on a character named Adonai Bezik. And uh, I should also mention that Chris and Kyle are co-teaching a course at Jerusalem University College in Israel, but it's available online, so you might want to check that out. If you look at the Jerusalem University College website, you'll find out information about that. Thanks so much for listening, and as we continue to try to get this podcast off the ground, you know, we're not even a year old yet, we'd appreciate if you could share or review the podcast wherever you listen, or tell your friends and family about it. Thanks so much, and enjoy the episode. Welcome back, Onscript Biblical World listeners. It is good to be back after a little hiatus. Uh, today, I am Kyle Keimer. I mean, I'm always Kyle Keimer, but today I am sitting here with, with Chris McKinney, and we're excited because we are going to be starting a new series for the podcast called Geography in Judges. And we were just joking a little bit ago about how that's great alliteration, even though Obviously, the words don't start the same. They sound the same. So I'm not sure if there's a specific fancy uh, language term for that. But we're going to call it Geography and Judges. And I like it. You like it good. I, well, it was your idea. So I think it's... Oh. Uh, <laughs> I hope yeah, you like idea. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, it's always fun to be back um, and talking about geography on Onscript Biblical World. Um, we've... Kyle and I have lots of different uh, interests and ideas um, that we that we'll talk about uh, like ASOR and SBL and these types of things. And one of the things that we both found out is that we really love the, the book of Judges. The book of Judges is just a fun account of blood and guts and a covenant infidelity and, and all of it against the, the backdrop of the, the land of Israel. Um, actually, really the land of Canaan as it's becoming the land of Israel, you might say. And so uh, we came up with the idea of looking at some of the more particular problems in the book of, of, of Judges. And so we're not sure how far this series will go, potentially all the way to, to chapter 21. You know, Judges has 21 chapters. But the goal is, is to not take it verse by verse. This is not a, a sermon, um, but it is more of, of looking at specific geographical issues that arise in the book. And in in the book of Judges, geography is really all over the place. Um, and at least in the case of the very first chapter, it is absolutely saturated, um, the first the first chapter, which is more or less a, a summary of everything that's going on with the tribes of Israel as uh, the prophet leader Joshua uh, passes on as he rides off into the sunset, uh, as it were. Um, the, 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 the mantle is going to be picked up by these, as we call them, judges who are going to uh, who are going to lead Israel um, away from the, the the violence that is being done them by these by these other nations. But Judges one itself um, is not technically a section that deals with characters. Uh, we don't really get that until Judges three. Uh, if we were just to think of the book as a whole. Uh, Judges 1 at the beginning, again, serves as this kind of geographical uh, tribal update of, of the things that have transpired in the intervening years since the death of, uh, since the death of Joshua. Now, um, with regards to that, with regards to that, and we could say a lot about the archaeology, the, the timeline in which this is happening, um, the relationship of this section of the Bible to um, historicity. Um, is there any, is there any background? We're going to talk about those things as they, uh, as they arise. But our, our main objective here is to look at some of these more, uh, thorny geographical problems. And so without further ado, I'm going to dive in 
dive right into the book of Judges. Yeah, uh, and, judges, and one, go ahead. I just say one thing, maybe if our listeners are listening to this uh, at a convenient place, coffee shop or someplace they can sit, maybe they open up a, a biblical text so they can follow along because we're not going to read the entire chapter, but it might be helpful to to have the text there because we are going to delve into it pretty pretty thoroughly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's always good to have uh, a, a biblical text handy, you know, on your screen. I like to use Accordance. I'm a big Accordance fan, so I'll have Accordance open while I'm uh, while I'm discussing this and and researching these different things. Uh, Accordance, if you don't know, is a is a really great Bible software package that not only connects you with biblical texts and the original languages and English and, and other translations, but it ties in wonderful resources like Sacred Bridge, Anchor Bible Dictionary, Context of Scripture, and and those types of things. And so if you're looking for uh, something to really improve your um, your biblical study and your really your your background stuff that we're doing on on Script Biblical World, it's a it's a great it's a great resource. Uh, with that said, I'm going to read the first seven verses of uh, of the book of Judges um, in Judges chapter one. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, and here it's Yahweh, L-O-R-D, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them. Yahweh said, Judah shall go up. I hereby give the land into his hand. Judah said to his brother Simeon, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we might fight against the Canaanites. Then I too will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and Yahweh gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Now that particular place, Bezek, is going to be one of our, um, our, our, our main focus of discussion. So just pay careful attention to that name, Bezek. They came upon Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has paid me back. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Uh, So thus perished Adonai Bezek. Uh, he he's uh, killed after losing his thumbs and his big toes, insult to injury. He's no longer uh, in the story. Now, in these short verses, um, we have just all kinds of uh, all kinds of details that come right at us. Um, but the first thing we should really we should really um, think about is. What's the context of Judges 1, assuming um, when it says after the death of Joshua? And this is actually a a pretty thorny problem because we don't know, uh, and there's a lot of scholarly debate as to uh, when the book of Judges dates to, when the book of Joshua dates to. But if we just look at it on the canonical level, or we look at it on the, um, you know, moving from Joshua to Judges, which in both the the Christian and Jewish uh, canons are are connected. We see that Joshua does die at the end of the book of of Joshua, and he had gathered together the the, the tribes in Joshua twenty four, and he had charged them once more at Shechem to uh, to do what they had been commanded to do. He 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 reminds them of the covenant um, the covenant blessings and cursings, the stipulations that come from the book of Deuteronomy. And he really charges this next generation with being faithful to finish the finish the conquest. And of course, the book of Judges is the story of how they don't do that, how they how they fail throughout. But I do think, in terms of the context, it's important to um, to set the stage for for Judges to understand how Joshua and Judges go together. And that's actually. A, a really vital issue for the question and location of Bezek. If we're to read Judges chapter 1 against the context of, of Joshua chapter 24, or even if we're just to judge it against the context of Joshua chapter 18, where we have the tribes of Israel gathering together at Shiloh or Shiloh, both of those contexts 
place um, Joshua, the character of Joshua who dies at uh, Timnah Sarah, which is in Western uh, Ephraim, or if we're to, to see this ceremony at Shechem, it's in, it's in the central part of the hills, um, right on the border between Manasseh and Ephraim, or even if we're to put it at Shiloh, they all fit in the central hills. And that's a key, a key point. And so when, he, when he's dying, when he's talking about them, he's really asking the question, who's going to pick up the mantle? Who's going to do this for us? And, and in some ways, this introduces the entire book of, 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 the entire book of Judges. Who's going to actually uh, defeat the Canaanites? And the answer is um, a lot of different people are going to try and a lot of different people are going to be successful for short periods of time. But ultimately, um, none of them are going to succeed for a long period of time, which is sort of the point of the book which is enumerated five times in the, last, uh, in the last four chapters. In those days, there's no king in Israel. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so his, his gauntlet thrown down is, who's going to do it? And the answer um, comes, from, uh, comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord in the next verse. It said, the Lord, uh, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Now, what's intended by this is hard to say. Could be that um, this is coming directly from the, the Ark of the Covenant, could be coming from the, the priest, which would indicate uh, Shiloh. We're not really given that information, but it says Judah shall go up, um, and Judah is going to be the one to lead, which has uh, obviously big implications for, uh, for the story. In fact, the very first judge that we're going to learn about is Othniel, who is from the tribe of, of Judah, Obviously, if we're reading this in the larger context of the Deuteronomistic history, we're thinking of, of David and we're thinking of the Davidic dynasty that is going to come from the line of, of, of Judah. We also learn that Judah is going to have a partner in crime. His partner is going to be his uh, older brother, Simeon. Now I'm talking about the, the, tribal, uh, the tribal brothers. And here we could say um, a, a couple of things about this, uh, Judah and Simeon. Because if we think back in the book of, of Joshua, the tribal allotments that exist between Judah and Simeon are, are very, very much connected with one another. In fact, we learn in uh, Joshua chapter 19, in the first 10 verses or so, that Simeon's allotment was within Judah. That is to say that his his territory was entirely encapsulated within the territory that was given to Judah. He was surrounded. And if you look at, at Joshua chapter 15 in the so-called Negev district in verses 21 through 32, you'll see that the towns given to Judah uh, consist almost entirely of all of Simeon's allotment. And there's some reasons for that in terms of uh, probably some textual dating. Uh, but the point is, is that Judah and Simeon uh, were one and the same. Um, when exactly they became one and the same is, is hard to say, but already in the book of Judges, we're, we're learning that they're going to fight together. Now, at this point, you here, might Chris, can think... I, can I jump yeah, in for ahead. just one second here? Sure. I, and I think th those points that you just made there are, are particularly relevant um, as we're thinking about the bigger context here of Judges 1, because in many ways, Judges 1 presupposes Joshua and what has been detailed there as a as a as almost a geographic reference of where is Judah going to be going up from. And we already know from um, Joshua, the, the tribal allotments of where these tribes are supposed to be. And this is going to create a bit of a discord between what we are about to come across in Judges as well. But it, it has so many different things going on. So that whole context, uh, I mean, we know where the tribes are supposed to be. We know where they're allotment is that we also know that they've begun this whole process of, of kind of taking over Canaan and aren't fully through with it, despite, you know, the kind of embellished claims in, in Joshua. We, we actually get conflicting views within the book of Joshua as well as how complete it was, how quick it was. But then there's a more sober version of, well, actually, it wasn't all that complete. And that's kind of where Judges is taking off as well and saying, yeah, it, it wasn't complete. Here's the problems that we're going to continue with as Israel is supposed to kind of step in in faith. Let's see what actually happens. Yeah, it's such a such a good point. And I, I think that it underlies one of these bigger issues is what does what does Joshua 13 through uh, 21 mean? Um, it's it's a, it's a hard uh, section for many people. Um, it's one of those passages that uh, Bible reading plans go to die. 
uh, because it's just a bunch of names. And of course, for Kyle and I, it's where uh, we have you know endless tabs on our computer d- dedicated to these <laughs> dedicated to these bats. I wrote a dissertation on it. One of my <laughs> buddies from college says, "Yeah, really interesting town lists, uh, but they, but they are interesting because they have this they they have this reality uh, reality." But the question is, with these town lists, with these boundary descriptions, um, the, yeah, they were allotted these territories, but did they actually live there? Um, is there a reality to let's say? Um, the tribe of Asher on the on the coast uh, of Akko, were they just given these territories, um, or do they actually live there? And the, the question is, when did they actually live there? Um, there's a real question also with with Dan, for instance. It's a it's a very interesting one that will come up in this in this study. They were given all the way to the coast of of Joppa, but then it says they weren't able to take it. Um, they were given it, but they never had it. Uh, so what, what do these actually, these ideas convey? And it could be utopian. It could be that, you know, in the, in the, in the ideal setting, this would be the way things, uh, the, w- the way things go. And so in the case of, of Judah and Simeon, it introduces this, this question that, and, and, and the, the immediate trouble that arises is this person of Adonai Bezek. And so if you already kind of know where the story is going and you know where Judah and Simeon are going to end up, you would assume that this is somewhere uh, in the south, that this is a Beersheba location, that this is a um, this is a Gerar, this is somewhere in the southern part of the of the Negev, maybe in the hill country in the hill country, but certainly not um, in the central part of the country. Um, and, and in fact, m- many scholars have pointed to this problem. There's one idea uh, that places this site near uh, near Gezer. Uh, there's another idea uh, by Anson Rainey who suggested that uh, this is just simply a location in the vicinity of, of, of Jerusalem uh, because Adonai Bezek sounds a lot, of course, like Adonai Zedek, who appears in Joshua chapter 10. Uh, but it's my contention, uh, leaving those possibilities um, open, it's my contention that the text is actually um, st- strongly hinting uh, that this location of Bezek is actually um, north of Shechem. So it's it's really in the central hills, uh, in, in the territory that would be become associated with uh, with Manasseh. And there's there's several reasons for that. The main reason, uh, well, we've already kind of alluded to one. The first is uh, all of the contextual background with Joshua, the location of his home in Timnasera and Western Ephraim, the location of, of the final blessing in Joshua 24, the location of the tabernacle uh, at Shiloh in Joshua 18. All of those um, would suggest somewhere in, in the hills. Um, but there's 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 also more than that. We learn, uh, we learn in um, if we look at the, at the larger context of, of these references to the Canaanites and especially the Perizzites, that they always, when we can talk about distinctive geography, appear in the area of Shechem and, and or Bethel. And for that, I'd like to just read us a few more, uh, a few more passages. Um, now, anytime you talk about ites, I've learned uh, people tend to uh, have their eyes roll back in the roll back on their skull and, and don't listen to you anymore. And admittedly, there's lots of ites in in the Bible. Uh, again, Kyle and I strangely like to talk about these parasites, Canaanites, and so on. Um, and we've we've done you know different work on this. I actually put all of the references to uh, the parasites in a table, and several interesting things emerge from that. Uh, one is we learn that the Perizzites are some of the, uh, or one of the so-called seven nations that Israel was supposed to drive out. So they get mentioned a lot in the book of Exodus, in the books of, of Deuteronomy, and so on, uh, as one of these seven nations, as Deuteronomy says, that are stronger and mightier than uh, than Israel. Um, and so they, they appear there. Now, unfortunately for that list of seven nations, uh, is we don't know exactly where each one of these are. For instance, we have the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, we know that the Jebusites probably are around Jerusalem. The Hivites seem to be in a couple different locations, um, but most especially in the area of Benjamin. We know this from Joshua chapter uh, Joshua chapter uh, 9, 
where the Hivites from Gibeon and Kephirah and Kiriat Urim and Be'erot come to Joshua. Uh, but there are also some indication that they're in the area of Mount Hermon. The Amorites is a, is a really old term that comes from um, going back into the early second millennium. This is a Mesopotamian term that refers to the Amuru, that is Westerners from the perspective of Mesopotamians, those who live west of the Euphrates River. And by the time of the Bible, this had been localized more in the northern part of the Levant. Um, and so it seems to be a general term for um, for people living in the land, just like Canaanites uh, is, a, is a general term. The Hittites, well, we'll, that, we'll save that for another episode, but it could be a reference to somewhere in, in southern Canaan, or it could be a reference to the Anatolian uh, kingdom that existed in the late Bronze Age. But needless to say, these seven nations as a group, these different ites as they get uh, as they appear together, they don't often allow us much geographical specificity to be able to decide who's um, you know where where these places are. Now, in the case of the parasites, we do have some interesting things to to point out. Kyle, you look like you wanted to say something. Yeah, let me just jump in here for a second. And it's kind of on a, a side side note with with some of these to to think archaeologically with this. I mean, you're you're articulating. The, the biblical tradition here, and there's clearly something remembered in the biblical tradition about these different groups. But when we come to the archaeology, whether we're talking Bronze Age in particular, or perhaps Iron Age, archaeologists to this point haven't been successful in any way of, of articulating any specific material culture that we could uh, associate to any of these kind of groups in Canaan. We generally speak of Canaanite culture by and large, or perhaps Amorite culture, if you will. But aside from that, we don't pick up specific forms of vessels and say, oh, here's a Jebusite jug, or here's a Hivite, you know, bowl. So there's a there's an issue here on the one hand, but at the same time, in my thinking, there's a lot of work to be done in this this thing because we we know from more recent studies, particularly in the northern Levant, about regionalization in pottery production. And so on the one hand, there is regionalism that we can identify between the north and the south. I think we're getting to a point where we can refine that even further to you know to smaller regions. And is it going to be possible or or not to start to break down the material culture in a very refined regional manner that that we can start to talk about, well, can these be associated with any of these groups? And maybe it's it's pie in the sky and we'll never be able to do it. But these are the kind of questions that we're moving potentially towards being able to address as we refine our understanding of the archaeology. And I think it's going to open some some great possibility. Now, at the same time, I think we also need to keep in mind that even if these are distinct groups that they identify themselves distinctly or that the people from the outside, i.e. in this case, the Israelites are identifying them distinctly, they may not have distinguished themselves um, in material culture. And so we always have to be aware of how people are actually identifying themselves. Are they doing it through their material culture, uh, i.e. the specific shape of bowls, or do we need to look at a broader perspective of their society? Is it not necessarily the shape of a bowl, but the fact that they always have um, bowls with a specific kind of plate versus bowls with a specific kind of juglet. And these are these are connections that I think are still uh, in need of being addressed fully because pottery doesn't always mean a specific people group. And I would make the case with the Israelites coming in that by and large, they're probably adopting lots of Canaanite forms because that's what you do. And you see this later on, you see this in the Northern Levant with groups as they're moving around. As you move into new territory, you adopt largely what you have there and you're not just bringing a brand new material culture with you. And so there's a lot of fuzziness going on in the archaeology, which I think is mirrored to a certain degree in the text, but hopefully we're moving to a place where we're willing to ask some of these questions and see what, what comes of it. Yeah, I think those are, those are really good points. And, and if you think about um, even the the role of archaeology in a lot of these studies, you can go back and read Petrie and uh, a lot of the earlier publications, and they'll talk about pottery they found. They say this is Amorite pottery, and this is Canaanite, and this pair like they they were doing these these kind of things, and then archaeology uh, really turned on that um, on idea to identify specific um, forms with these different people groups. And I think there's another thing that we um, can add is that the Bible itself uh, is inconsistent 
in that it doesn't like it might refer to the same person as an Amorite and a Canaanite, uh, or it might refer to, uh, let's say, Og, king of Bashan. He might be one of the Amorite kings, but he's also a Rephaim. So which one, which one is he? It becomes it becomes a, a much more complicated thing. And, and then you see that there's not a real need to always be overly specific about these different ites that we have. Now, with all that said, what do the Perizzites tell us? What can we learn about the Perizzites? Well, we learn from Genesis 13, verse 7, that uh, after Abraham comes into the land, after he's gone down, you know, he's gone to Shechem, he's gone to uh, Bethel, he's gone to the Negev, he's gone to Egypt, he's come back, and now he's in the area of, of Bethel. And he's there with this large herd of livestock, uh, him, and Ab- him and his nephew Lot, and they're about to divide. And it says that they're, that they're up in the hills near Bethel. And it says at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land, indicating that Lot and Abram were one of these groups in the vicinity of these Canaanites and Perizzites. And again, the location is the area of Bethel, which would be uh, some 10, 15 miles north of Jerusalem. We have a similar, um, a similar expression of this in Genesis chapter 34. This is after the so-called uh, Dina episode, uh, which we won't get into, but it has some interesting things for us to, to pay attention to. Um, this is after uh, Simeon and Levi have had their vengeance upon Shechem and his compadres uh, after he has convinced them that the only way that he can marry their sister is if he and they circumcise themselves and they say, oh, great, this is a cheap way to marry ourselves to Jacob's sons and his wealth. Uh, and it turns out to be not so cheap because Simeon and Levi um, strike great vengeance upon Shechem and they, and they kill them. Um, and so Jacob really, uh, he responds to his sons and says, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Now, this is an important detail. And this is one of those great passages is, is what Simeon and Levi what they did is it good? Is it bad? Is it somewhere in between? Um, and the answer to all these questions is yes. Um, that, that there's there's a lot going on as the story that needs to be held in in intention. We won't comment so much about that, but we'll say it's precisely because of this that when Jacob goes to bless, uh, air quotes added there, um, bless his sons, he says that Simeon and Levi shall be scattered because of their their violence. And so he sees this quite negatively, that they at least didn't listen to to him and figure out the, the right way to, to handle this. Um, and so this gives us the reason why Levi and Simeon are scattered among their tribes. In the case of Levi, he's scattered among all the, of the other 11 tribes. In the case of Simeon, he's scattered among Judah. But the important point for us in this passage is Genesis 34 is centered at Shechem, and it mentions specifically the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Our third uh, passage is in Joshua, Joshua chapter 17. This is in the allotment of the territory of Manasseh. So this fits in very nicely with what we read at the beginning of Judges chapter 1. Um, so the, the Manassehites and the Ephraimites, the sons of Joseph, they come to Joshua and they say, look, we're too many people. We need more land. And Joshua says, what do you want from me? I've given you the best land. Look at those forests, go cut them down. And it specifically says, uh, go to those forests and clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Now, the hill country of Ephraim itself probably refers to not just the territory of Ephraim, but much of the central hills. Um, we have other passages, which, for instance, with in Judges chapter uh, 4, where it talks about how Deborah is in, in between Ramah and Bethel, and it says, in the hill country of Ephraim. So it's not just a, a territorial tribal border, but it's a, a more of a regional name. But the, the key point is, is it talks about here how this is the land of the Perizzites. And so we can say from these texts, I would say, quite safely that the Perizzites, uh, their territory, even though we can't even identify a single one of them, uh, haven't been able to archaeologically or uh, talk about them in any other text, but the Bible seems to connect them with the central hills in the area of, of Shechem and in the area of Bethel. And it's to these Perizzites 
that we have um, that we have them uh, Simeon and, and, and Judah going up against. And so, with that said, let's return now uh, to our our main text in, in Judges in Judges one. Kyle, did you have? Yeah, no, comment? I think that the, the point you just made is just really a really important one, Chris. That uh, I think again sets the geographic context that we're pretty clearly not dealing with the region from say Jerusalem to Hebron. This is just not in the mind of the biblical author. And this is going to be, this is going to set up the stark contrast for what, what is about to happen, because this is the territory that becomes known as Judah, and they're not operating there. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, regardless if Simeon's from the south, Judah's from the south later on, uh, it, it doesn't matter to the author. Now, that said, as you read forward in the next uh, 10 verses, and we'll talk about this next time, you're going to see that Judah and Simeon do team up once more, and they fight in the area of the Negev, um, that they that they go against these forces in, in, in the territory that they will have. Uh, but I actually think that this is a pretty interesting passage because it's showing kind of this I would say perhaps more realistic way of of seeing these tribes functioning outside of the territories that they would necessarily settle in. And so it might present them as almost like these nomadic power, you know, these nomadic forces that are going against different uh, different entities. And that's actually, if that's the case, that also means Adonai Bezek is probably a similar type of entity because we're going to learn later that he goes and dies at Jerusalem. Um, and he is uh, at, at this at this point uh, at the end of the story, perhaps at his capital or where he resided. And yet they fight him at a place, Bezek, which is some 35 miles to the north. And so it, it, it presents not it presents the story as um, having these moving uh, forces, these these territories that are not just national borders where you'd say like Philistine Gath going against uh the, uh, the, you know, the Israelites or the kingdom of Judah or the Ammonites and Moabites, but instead these seemingly smaller chieftain uh, nomadic uh, air, uh, uh, tribes that are, that are warring with one another. And, and that's the way I would interpret it anyway. And I, I think that there's some important things about that, um, it, that, that we can learn from some of the contemporary literature, which would be in this case, Amarna, but we'll, we'll save that for, for, uh, for, for, uh, for a little bit later. Yeah. So it says, and let that, me just add the, one last thing yeah, with ahead. that, because um, it also sets up what we see here and building on what you're saying is again, a stark contrast be, between what we're going to see later on in Judges 4, 5, and the kind of coalition of Israelite tribes um, kind of in the North and the complete lack of reference to Judah. And so they're again, operating generally the same kind of broader context in the north, Judah is not to be heard of and is not around there, um, whereas they are here. And so, yeah, there's there seems to be something happening here that the author wants to convey in some way. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. And that's part of the the underlying message of the book of Judges is that a king will unite the tribes. A king will be able to bring together these disparate parts of uh, what is the the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, whereas these uh, these judges won't be able to. And in some ways, um, the book of Judges is really about auditioning particular people, but mainly the particular tribes to be the royal tribe who will, who will lead uh, who will lead uh, the Israelites. And and so that's a great point in the case of, of, of Judges four and five. Um, and so we're, we're really at the start of that audition, if you will. And so that leads us to uh, this location of Bezek. Where is Bezek? Uh, we've already kind of localized it in the area of uh, the Central Hills. It turns out that we have a uh, a great um, a great site identification that can be made for this. Um, it's a site called Kirbit Ibzik, which you can already hear in that name. Uh, a very close connection between Ibzik and Bezek. Uh, it's just uh, several miles to the north of Shechem on the main road between Beit Shan and, uh, and, and, and Shechem. And this location um, matches very closely with what we would think of geographically. There's another reason why uh, we should connect this. And that is because in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 8, we read about Saul um, after he has been anointed to be king uh, by Samuel 
uh, he first of all goes back and starts farming, uh, which is not what you would expect of, of, of a newly founded king. Um, and when he's called to arms to protect his, uh, his homeland, and we'll, we'll talk about some of that later on when we get to the story of Jabesh Gilead, uh, he kills the, uh, the donkey that he had been, um, that maybe it's an ox and I forget which, divides it up and it says all of Israel came with Saul as one man and they go to Bezek. They marched all night to Bezek before they marched to the east to go to uh, Jabesh Gilead, which is in the area of Transjordan across from Beit Shan. And it's there that he is able to, to fight against uh, the Ammonites, the Ammonite king, Nahash, and defeat them. Interestingly enough, this passage in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11 has a lot of similarities with our passage, not only in terms of uh, geography. You know, we have uh, someone in the area of uh, the south, in this case, uh, Saul, uh, getting everyone to come up together and fight against this more central hill country, uh, more northern foe, and, sp and it specifically mentions Bezek. But we also have this disfigurement um, playing a role in that story. And again, we're, we're not going to go into the specifics here, but if you, you can read in 1 Samuel chapter 11, um, it talks about how Nahash had put out the eye of these different people. And actually, this is one of those places that the Dead Sea Scrolls and Josephus give us a lot more information because it says for months he had been going all throughout Gilead and causing everyone, if they, if they wouldn't fight him, to put out their right eye. And so this, this sign of disfigurement um, was essentially a sign of, of domination and fealty to this upstart king, Nahash. And that fits precisely with what we see in Adonai Bezek, because we'll learn at the end of this episode, and we already read it, that he loses his thumb, he loses his toe, because he had made all of these other so-called kings, and there's 70 of them, these 70 kings, do that for him, which, again, makes him much more like this nomadic uh, character, this character that's not defined by necessarily territorial borders, but by these small cities or these, or these tribes or uh, uh, nomadic groups who, whose leader owes their allegiance to Adonai Bezek, which also I would say is the same kind of thing we read about in Nahash. But if we, if we go back to this question of the geography, uh, Ibzik works quite nicely. Now, unfortunately, at the site, there's not a lot of um, bronze or Iron Age uh, remains, but the surveyor, Adam Zertal, who surveyed all of the region of Manasseh for I think they're in there. He's, he's passed away in the last several years, but I think they're in their 40th or 50th year of surveying. And he surveyed a nearby site called Kirbit Salhab, which is a much larger uh, Iron Age site, which probably represents uh, biblical Bezek. And so that's what both uh, Kyle and I would land on. Maybe I'm speaking for Kyle, but this is where I would land on in this question of where Bezek is located. Yeah, Somewhere I, between... Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to agree. And I just make the point that what we know also from historical geography is that, um, the, you know, the name Kirbet Ibzik, is, I mean, there's no other better name that's preserving this this ancient name, even though the, the archaeology doesn't match up. What we know from many, many instances is that sites can move um, within a few kilometers of or a few miles of themselves. And so it'd be like Los Angeles picking up and moving 10 miles to the south. You still call it Los Angeles, but it's it's in a different geographic location. And while that might not happen in our modern you know, world, this is clearly something that did take place in antiquity. And there's there's no issue then that the site of Kirbet Ibzik itself doesn't have the right archaeology if a nearby site does does have Iron Age, Bronze Age materials, because this is a known phenomenon. Yeah, great point. Uh, that that the the moving the moving toponym uh, is something that can happen quite often, as is the fact that 30-40% of Arabic place names that survive into the 19th and 20th century preserve uh, ancient ancient names, uh, which is clearly the case here. Um, and and so as we as we look at this a little further, let's let's conclude and see what happens. Uh, as is often the case in the battle, there's a lot of buildup, and then the uh, unlike what we would do in 
Lord of the Rings or um, Game of Thrones spend half of the the episode talking about the blood and guts of the battle, things happen really quickly. Like they they lost uh, or they won. I mean, that's that's the typical understatement of of biblical literature when talking about warfare. And so they're 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 victorious, which fits in with the fact that from a providential standpoint, Yahweh had told them to go. They defeat uh, they defeat Bezek, and it says they defeated also the Canaanites and the Perizzites. From this, we can infer that these Canaanites and Perizzites are the group that Adonai Bezek had as let's call it a coalition or people that were underneath him. Now, Adonai Bezek himself, it says, flee. He fled from the from the battlefield, um, which is always kind of a cowardly thing to do uh, in, in throughout history, but certainly uh, depicted here. But he didn't go very far, and they were able to catch up with him, cut off his thumbs and big toes. And this is where we get that famous line. Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. What does he mean by that? What is, what's the intent there? And I would, I would start with the number uh, 70, uh, the number 70, which in the Bible is, is very much charged with, uh, with meaning. Uh, we have, for instance, in Genesis chapter 10, the 70 nations uh, that appear in, in the end of the book of Genesis, we have the 70 members of Jacob's family that go down into, uh, that go down into, uh, into Egypt, uh, in the, um, cosmology of the Canaanites, um, we have El and Baal becoming the king over the 70 gods of the divine council of um, you know, of, of the Canaanite pantheon. We see the same thing in Mesopotamia. And so this number 70, uh, maybe it was just 65. I, does, the, the point is, is that it it symbolizes this group of people that I'm empowered over, that I am the the, the biggest and the best of this group. And uh, in terms of the way that you would refer to this, it, 70 is the number you would use. Um, we could talk about this in another context, but it's also like, in the Bible, if you think about how long a siege takes, it almost always is seven days. Does that mean that every battle was fought in seven days? Or is it just a way of, of expressing um, something that you would expect, almost like a, a, a literary trope for this? And so 70 kings here represents uh, maybe not actually 70 uh, people. And, and again, what does it mean by king? It can't be, there's never been at any one time 70 nations in the land of Canaan, um, but it can be the ruler of a, of a town. And so he is brought with him all of these groups, uh, and, and he's indicating he's a strong, uh, a strong king. Now, there's another... Hey, Chris, can I, can I jump yeah, in ahead, just real quick? Because I mm-hmm. think, you know, these two points that you made are just really, really significant as we read the biblical text that we need to keep in mind if we want to read it in an ancient Near Eastern context is that, number one, numbers oftentimes have a symbolic meaning. They can be literal, but there's also certain numbers that have clear symbolic purposes, 70, 47, three, multiples of these. And so it makes it challenging for us where we read a number and say, oh, it's, it's that number. Well, yes and or no. It could also be telling us something different. We have to be attuned to that the same way that we have to allow the um, kind of semantic range of words to reflect what the original authors and audiences understood them. So king, right? That, that's not the same king we're thinking of. This is a, a person that has authority over one to a million people. I mean, there's no um, there's no scope within the term of how many people this, the, this person is ruling over. It just means they have authority over someone else. And the fact that, you know, so in this particular instance, you've got people that have authority over others. Adoni Bezik has authority over all them. Using referring to 70 means pretty much everyone, yeah, in the general area, they're they're under Adoni Bezik and he's the he's the big dog. Yeah, great point. I mean, so it can apply as a term as a term to King Sennacherib, who's the king of the largest empire at that point in history. And it could also refer to King Hezekiah who is the king of a small state. But it can also refer to the 30 kings that Joshua killed, and there's one king of Arad, or it, it's, which is a, a tribal group at most. So it's a, it's a, very flexible, uh, a very flexible term here. But I would say in this case, it's, it's heightening 
Adonai Bezek to be much more than just the ruler of Jerusalem, uh, but he's he's got 70 people who owe their allegiance to him, which brings us to a point of comparison that we that we should pay attention to, and that is Joshua chapter 10. In Joshua chapter 10, we learn about Adonai Zedek, not Bezek, Adonai Zedek, uh, who is a uh, a different a different uh, character, and there might even be um, some relationship or some correspondence between Adonai Zedek, Adonai Bezedek, Bezek, and Melchizedek, all of which are presented as different kings of Jerusalem at different points in the narrative. Now, in the case of Adonai Zedek, he is the first among equals of a group of five, um, uh, a group of, of five Amorite kings. We use that term in Joshua, Joshua 10, that includes Hebron, Eglon, Lachish, um, and uh, what's the other one I'm missing? Yarmut or, or Jarmuth. Um, and, and, and so he is going to lead a coalition against Gibeon, um, that Joshua has just become in league with. Now, over the course of that narrative, Joshua obviously is victorious and he defeats several of these kings, but um, no real mention is made as to what happens to Jerusalem afterwards. And as you get to Joshua chapter 18, you learn that the Benjaminites were not able to conquer Jerusalem. And so here it's a, um, it's a funny thing because it says they brought him back to Jerusalem and he died there. And then in the next verse, uh, it will say in verse eight and nine, that the men of Judah uh, took Jerusalem and burned it with fire. And then in the next verse, <laughs> we learn that the Benjaminites were not able to conquer Jerusalem. And so what's going on with Jerusalem? And the answer is uh, hard to say, uh, hard to say with a whole lot of certainty um, in terms of how we're to put these in a chronology, how do we're to, to talk about specific um, historical backgrounds, uh, backgrounds here. And that, uh, I think, brings us to um, a kind of archaeological and historical analogy, uh, something that has uh, definite connections with uh, what we're talking about here. And that is the, the question of, uh, of, of what was it meant to be a king and, and, and what, what historical sources can tell us. And this is where we should go to the Amarna Correspondence. Um, th those of you who don't know what the Amarna Correspondence are, uh, Mary Buck and myself have a nice, what well, we think is nice, uh, discussion of, of the Amarna letters um, and their, their overall context. Really briefly, they're written in the 14th century. Many of them are written by Canaanite city-states back to uh, their Egyptian overlord, uh, complaining about different things that are happening in the politics of, of Canaan. And one of the, the main thing that happens in this in, in in the stories is the rise of this shadowy figure named Labayu, who reigns in Shechem, and is able to uh, bring to his um, uh, bring under his uh, under his control a whole swath of uh, the land of Canaan, what will become later the land of Israel, and he is opposed by other kingdoms, other rulers of city states like Shuardarta of of Gath and Milkilu of of, of Gezer. And uh, so we have this back and forth between these uh, different entities. Um, and of course, they're all supposed to be loyal to, uh, they're all supposed to be loyal to Pharaoh Akhenaten um, in far off, uh, the far off land of, land of Egypt, but they're really kind of doing what they want as they fight with one another. Now, th there's two points of, of correspondence, I would say here, is that I think we should basically understand Adonai Zedek, Adonai Bezek, uh, really, even if we're if we're being honest, Saul, David, perhaps even a little bit in the case of, of Solomon, we should probably use the Amarna world, the Amarna way of understanding geopolitics um, against that context. Now, the, the difference is there's no big cat in Egypt at this point dictating what you have to do, but the, still the growth of a kingdom if we want to use that term from uh, an entity that's able to be relatively independent and then starting to grow, um, I, I think works quite well with what we see in the Amarna correspondence for the early Iron Age. A second point here, um, and, and I know Kyle's itching to, he's going to have some things to add to this, uh, or maybe even disagree, I'm not sure. Um, but a second point is the role of uh, the evidence for Jerusalem. Because we have several letters from Jerusalem from a king named Abdi Cheba, 
uh, and that name Abdi uh, refers to a servant. Cheba is actually a Hittite deity, uh, very interestingly. Um, and so we, we have letters that were uncovered in Amarna. There's even a letter that was found in Jerusalem, which is thought to be an archival letter from this correspondence, or at least something related to this time frame. Um, and the point is, though, is that there's very, very little archaeological evidence of late bronze Jerusalem, whether we're talking 15th, 14th, 13th century. Um, and that's an important point because, uh, and in reality, there's about the same amount of evidence, if not less late Bronze Age evidence as there is for, uh, let's say, an 11th and 10th century when we have, we're supposed to have a, a, a the growth of a king of, of David and Solomon. And so there's this question of, is the glass half full or the glass half empty? When archaeologists and historians look at the United Kingdom, they say, these texts say, grander power, we find nothing. And yet when we talk about Amarna, Jerusalem, we have clearly a an important state in the case of Jerusalem as a as a kingdom that is opposing uh, and at least heavily involved in the politics of what's happening with Labayu and these other entities. And yet in terms of uh, actual physical remains, very little. And so this brings us to this question of what should we expect to find? What will exist uh, from an archaeological perspective and the role of integrating archaeology and, and, and text? And so at the end of the day, we can't with certainty uh, lay out the chronology or establish the historicity of Melchizedek, Adonai Zedek, Adonai Bezek, and, and, and deal with all the complexities that exist there. And in fact, that's not what we've really tried to do here. We've tried to show the, the plausibility of how this type of, of, of system could work based upon good archaeological and uh, contemporary texts, um, as well as focusing on what the geography clearly, in our opinion, means. Um, and so what we see then, if we think of Bezek, is we have Adonai uh, Bezek going towards the north, and he's perhaps protecting an area that he saw Judah and Simeon were, were infringing on, and they have this battle, and he loses, and he's ultimately defeated. Um, and yet there's more battles to come as you read forward in the book of Judges. Yeah, Chris, I think that all the points that you make there, I think this is exactly the way that we need to be thinking about um, the book of Judges. And I think some of this early literature about early early Israel, and it's it's not so much that we're going to be able to find any smoking guns to answer questions of historicity, but... Maybe smoking thumbs. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Um, but we do have these external resources, such as the Amarna text, that really give us a great window into what is taking place in a time period when we just don't have a lot of written resources, but, well, you know, as we move particularly into the 12th and 11th centuries in particular, but it gives us a sense of how things operated politically, socially, the interactions of groups, and what we see in judges, I think you know, the parallel with what we see in the Amarna text is actually is very appropriate, as we're seeing the same kind of thing taking place. We actually see the same kind of dynamic as we move through throughout Judges and even into First Samuel as well, and the kind of er early rise of the Israelite monarchy. And we can't just write this off as as coincidence. I mean, they they all purport to be telling us of a general of generally the same kind of time period. And a lot of the the specific structures, we might want to call them, operate in the same way. And I think that, you know, this is beside what the biblical author is also trying to tell us. I think some of these specific details are captured, you know, not necessarily on purpose, but I think they come through. I think that the biblical author also does mention some specific things very much on purpose, such as Bezek. And if we think about, again, again, you mentioned the connection to Saul, the dominion of Adonai Bezek and Adonai Tzedek also, I mean, this is going to mirror largely what the early Israelite monarchy controls in the days of, of, of David as, as a kind of get-go. This is the territory that showed allegiance to Saul. This is the territory that showed allegiance to David. And here we have Judah operating in the Northern Territory in the same way that David under, well, Judah under David is going to be operating in the same territory, albeit a bit implicitly according to the biblical text. 
And so I think there's any different, a number of different layers we can be looking at here, whether it's the extra biblical sources, the history, the, the Amarna text, the geography, I think is extremely significant for pulling all this together and saying, okay, you know, everything kind of fits what we know historically, politically, sociologically, but there's clearly a point that the biblical author is trying to make, and he's using very specific places, specific terms as well, to make a point that is set within this bigger narrative, not only of the book of Judges, but Joshua through Samuel and Kings, if not even more than that. And, and we have to be able to view the text and the, the stories in all these different layers if we really want to gather what's going on. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think that that's and, and I, I would just, in conclusion to this, and we'll have a we'll have part two, or not really part two, it's just continuing the series of geography and judges uh, next time, and we'll look at Hebron and some of the giants that are mentioned there, and that, that'll be fun. But as we as we think about this, I think a lot of times the focus is on historicity, reliability, and the, not to say those questions aren't important, but there's there's a point in which the archaeological evidence is not always going to just say it's a slam dunk case one way or the other. And so I think that one of the best ways to approach stuff like this is taking the evidence as far as we can um, and using things like the Amarna uh, correspondence to uh, give us a, a plausible way of, of, uh, of reconstructing this. And, and one last point I would say um, is I, the more you read, the more I do anyway, um, the, the Bible, and the more you look at the archaeological evidence, the more you see that even though there is a obvious distinction that is being made between the Israelites and the Canaanites, or let's just say Gentiles and God's people, if you want to put it that way, um, there's all kinds of textual evidence that they are related to one another, that they that they are interacting with one another, that the nations that they conquer or the countries and the cities that they go into, um, that the populations are not killed off. Uh, and it's not just suddenly that Israel is, is uh, you know, this new people living in a land that was empty. Um, th they're, they're related all throughout. I mean, this is referred to in some uh, clear examples with with Rahab uh, marrying into the line of uh, of Israel and in Christian tradition, this becomes the the line of Jesus, which would be Judahite in Jewish tradition. She becomes the wife of Joshua, um, and so the the connections between the locals who are there uh, and whatever the incoming number is of Israelites. Um, it, it, it's really clear that they these entities are intermingling throughout. Um, and so uh, I, I say that because there's obviously been lots and lots of discussions about how, what historical models we should use for conquest and settlement. Um, and, you know, the more critical ideas is that there is no Israel. They're just there and they kind of invent this story um, because there's a lot of evidence which points to the fact that much of what is Israel is is like their predecessors. And so whereas I'm in the, in the camp of um, I, I think there's good evidence to point to something coming from the outside. But yet at the same time, in terms of the material culture and the overall numbers of who would call themselves a full-on uh, uh, genuine Israelite versus a Canaanite, uh, I don't really think they think in those terms. And the connections between the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the, all the otherites is so built into the text as well as the archaeology um, that we're not really talking about a whole gulf between um, a, a way of understanding the, the text more or less in the traditional way and where critical scholarship has ended up. Yeah. And I think, Chris, I'll just add in my, my concluding thoughts. I think that, you know, yeah, speaking particularly of this, this issue of these, these models that it, we, what we need is a really close reading of the text and we can't overgeneralize it, which I think, unfortunately, has been what has led to a number of the divergent models, uh, along with other factors as well. But we have to recognize that there is this tension there, and there's also hyperbolic language, which is entirely appropriate for specific genres of ancient Near Eastern literature that, that we're dealing with here. And so we need to recognize these as a starting point 
in any kind of reconstruction we're doing. And at times the text says, yep, they, they intermingled with people. They didn't wipe them out completely. They intermingled with them. They settled in their territory amongst them. They're living with them today. They're doing this, they're doing that. At the same time, there's this recognition that at least some of them are coming from outside and moving in. And archeologically, what does that look like? And I think there's a lot of research that needs to be done. And I kind of mentioned it earlier in the episode that, it, you know, again, pots don't just equal people just because late bronze Canaanite ceramic traditions continue into the iron one doesn't mean that we're not dealing with a new people group that has adopted that tradition. And we need to be a bit more nuanced, whether we're talking about the text and what it says or the archeology span and how we interpret it. Word. <laughs> this was fun. Yes, it was. We should do it again. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> Judges two next time. Or judges, yeah, judges part two. We'll we'll, we'll get into it. Uh, geography and Genesis. We'll keep this ball rolling. Uh, but until next time, uh, keep listening to On Script Biblical World. But Kyle has something to say. I see. I, I just want to throw out there for our listeners: if you are enjoying this podcast. Number one, like it, subscribe, tell your friends, your families, um, send it to everyone you know. Think about it. Maybe even donate, as Matt Lynch likes to put in introduction to help us continue doing what we're doing. But Chris and I are also going to be teaching an online class through Jerusalem University College on the archaeology of the Shvelah. And so if this is something that you're particularly interested in, I go on to Jerusalem University College's website and find our class, Archaeology of the Shvelah. We can even put a link in with uh, this episode here and sign up. And we're going to go through from the Bronze Age through the Roman period and look at some of the, the archaeology uh, of this region. We're going to deal with the big issues going on. We're going to bring in some super um, great guests, some of the specialists that have excavated a number of these different sites and pick their brains. So it's going to be a lot of fun. So just wanted to make people of this opportunity. Excellent point. All right, guys, until next time, we will we will catch you next time on OnScript Biblical World Podcast. Have a good day. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>